0: Father God, we've just sung that you would show us Christ, and that's what we want. Please show us Christ in order that we might join with all creation in praising your King, in praising the King of glory. Give us a vision of our King, Lord, that our hearts be full of joy and wonder and praise. Lord, as a result of what we hear, please make us vocal. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Came across a, a magazine article this week which describes how various classic pieces of work were first received by the critics. It may feel quite a funny re- reading. In 1804, one newspaper in Vienna had this to say about Beethoven's latest symphony. It is a crass monster, a hideously writhing wounded dragon. And although it's bleeding throughout the finale, it just refuses to die. Not a fan. Not a fan of Beethoven there. Well in eighteen forty seven, a certain women's magazine had this to say about Charlotte Bronte's Withering Heights. How a human being could have attempted to write such a book without committing suicide before they finished even a dozen chapters is a mystery. It is a compound of vulgar depravity and unnatural horrors. Withering heights. I don't know. Withering, Withering. Wuthering. Oh, man. Got it all wrong. More recently, 1997, Radiohead released their classic album, OK Computer. Arguably the greatest musical album ever released. You'll always see it there, number one or number two on the greatest albums. And yet, Rolling Stone magazine labelled it their dud of the month when it was released. They said, Radiohead wouldn't know tragedy if they were cramming for an A-level English exam. Clearly, they don't know Tom York's material. I think that the thing that each of those pieces have in common is that at the time of their release, they were so new, so different, so avant-garde, that it's almost as if the critics just didn't have any categories to almost understand them with. Uh, They should have piled on praise, but not understanding what they are looking at. Instead, they piled on scorn. It's always been the case, sometimes... People don't recognize greatness when they see it. Well, in our passage today, we're asked whether we recognize Jesus' greatness. And you know, one one of the best ways of working that out, it's not the only way, but a really good way for working out whether we think Jesus is great, is to consider your emotional response to him. Are our hearts full of praise for our king or do we just kind of not really see what all the fuss is about or maybe we know we we should have sort of grateful and thankful hearts for what jesus has done for us but but given our sort of uh, pressures in life given anxieties we're under our concerns maybe they just beat us down to a sort of a minor key when we should be a major key whether you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus tonight or not, whether you've been following Jesus for ages, my aim is, is the same for all of us. I want to show you a king who's completely worthy of your praise. A, a king who is worth shouting about. A king who is, is worth not just your intellectual assent, oh yes, I believe in him, but um, your entire life of Praise. Here's my first point. I want to introduce you to a king who is in control. The king who is in control. I'll look down at verse 28 in your Bibles, please. Verse 28. It says this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, These are baffling verses, aren't they? I've, I've been scratching my head over this, this this section for most of this week. It's strange, because since chapter 9, is 10 chapters ago, Jesus has been quite happy walking to Jerusalem, but now he's just one mile out, and suddenly he wants to hitch a ride. And, and and given the fact he seems to know exactly where he might get a baby donkey, we wonder why he bothers sending his disciples ahead to do it for him. Is he lazy? Has he, I don't know, sprained, sprained an ankle or, or something like that? And notice just how specific Jesus' details are in his instructions. He knows where the colt would be in the village ahead of you. He knows the nature of the animal. It's never been ridden. He knows the exact state the animal will be found in. It, it'll be tied up. We're told that five times. It's been, it'll be tied up. He knows exactly what the disciples should say in order to get the animal. The Lord needs it. And you've got to think, why has why Luke bothered wasting all this space, telling us such mundane details? If this is a miracle, it's probably the least exciting miracle in the entirety of Luke's gospel. Well, here's some ideas. It, it, could, be, it could be that Jesus wants to underline once again who he is. You might know all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, Judah was told that a tied-up donkey would be a symbol of his rule his kingship and then later in one kings chapter one david tells his son solomon to ride a donkey on the way to his, his coronation so maybe that that's jesus aim here he wants his disciples to see that he is the long promised messiah he's from the tribe of judah he is a king of david's line maybe maybe that's the point but i wonder if jesus aim here is far more pastoral I think Jesus wants his disciples to know that they can trust him throughout what is about to happen. You see, Jesus knows that when he enters Jerusalem, it's going to look as if everything's out of control. His people will turn on him, and instead of crowning him with a crown of gold, they'll crown him with a crown of thorns. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, slap him. And then crucify him. And the disciples looking at this, they'll be tempted to think everything's out of control. And Jesus wants them to know, no, he's in complete control. A couple of years ago, I went to one of these... um, go ape centers have you ever been to go ape it's like these climbing centers in in the middle of a, a sort of a forest area and you, you arrive and um you, sort of, you ask yourself where, where is the climbing equipment and then and then you look 40 feet up in the air and you realize it's you're walking under it for the last five minutes terrifying and um but before they let you up on the big stuff well, they make you go around this really patronizing little course it's 30 centimeters off the ground and I um, and went there a stag dune. As you can imagine, we were all like, oh, too afraid to go on that. And the, the instructors really, they've heard that joke too many times, and they weren't finding it very funny. But um, the point of this 30 centimeter off the ground course is to let you know that these ropes, these carabiners, they can hold your weight. You can trust them. So if you can trust them on the 30 centimeter off the ground course, you can trust them on the 40 foot in the air course. Well, In the same way as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he wants his disciples to see, he wants us to see everything is going to plan. So if we know he's in control of the little things, where exactly to get a donkey, then we can trust he's in control of the massive things, his death, his resurrection, and our salvation. I think we could have really easily skimmed over this section rather quickly, because they're not very exciting. But I think this truth should be of enormous comfort for us here tonight. So I'm sure in each of our lives, there are things which we feel are completely out of our control. And if we're honest, they really get us down. It's the things we churn over in our mind when we go to sleep at night. We worry about them. They might be little things, they might be big things. And just from some of the conversations I've had with some of you this week, I I know we're worried about stuff. Can I trust Jesus with my job situation? Can I trust Jesus with that relationship problem? Can I trust Jesus with my health, with my death? Sometimes it's little stuff, sometimes it's big stuff. But you know, what a comfort it is to know that Jesus is king. (laughs) And that he reigns absolutely sovereign over all things, from the little stuff to the big stuff. So whatever your anxieties, whatever your concerns here tonight, the rope can hold your weight. Jesus can hold your weight. He's in control, so trust him. Trust him. Here's our our second point, where we'll spend most of our time. I want to introduce you to the king who brings peace. Look down at verse 35 in your Bibles. Verse 35. Now, if I mention Pearl Harbor to you, what comes to mind? Pearl Harbor. I doubt any of you are thinking of a beautiful lagoon somewhere in the Oahu Island in Hawaii. None of you are thinking of that. All of you are thinking of an event which happened in 1941, or maybe the Ben Affleck film. I don't know. It depends how cultured you are. Well, in the same way, the crowds, they're in the Mount of Olives, but none of them are thinking, well, this is a nice place to get a picnic, Now, this this place is of real significance. In Zechariah 14, it's pictured as the very place where the end of the world would happen. Where all the nations would gather to fight against God. And then God comes out and would rescue his people and crush the nations. So you can see why Jesus' followers here are really happy. They're really excited. Because here they are, they're with the king, the king of David line, of the line of Judah. And they're in the very place... Where the king is going to crush their foreign oppressors. And they're thinking, yeah, brilliant, bring it on. This is the end of the Romans. This is the beginning of our kingdom. And no. Notice Jesus does not come to bring war. If he intended to bring war, Jesus would have rode in Jerusalem on a chariot with a massive war horse, wouldn't he? But no, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, which we read earlier, Jesus rides on a baby donkey because he comes to bring peace now this picture this image is is so familiar to us it's so iconic isn't it i think we forget just how ridiculous it is in christian artwork you often see in these paintings that jesus is riding a sort of a, a nice handsome adult donkey no 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 it's a cult jesus legs would have been swinging centimeters off the ground it's never been ridden before it would have been swerving all over the place jesus could not have looked less like a warrior if he tried he would have looked ridiculous and that's the point jesus is not coming with the threat of war he's coming with the open hand of peace and whether we know it or not this is a peace each of us really need we really need it if you were here last week jesus told that story didn't he about a king who who goes away on a long journey But his subjects hated him. They they, they tried to form a coup. And they they say, we do not want this man to be king over us. And if we're honest, that is how each of us, by nature, respond to Jesus. See, deep down, we we might see Jesus as a threat to our autonomy or our independence. But we, we like to pray, my kingdom come. My will be done. And so, what we do, we reach up and we snatch the crown of Jesus' head and thrust it on our own. It's often in the little things that the things we say, the things we do, the things we let run through our mind, we declare we do not want this man to be king over us. Not over my free time, not over my sex life, not over my work life balance. Not over my money. We all do this, don't we? (laughs) It's not just the really horrible people we read about in the newspapers. We all do this, and it's stupid. It's so stupid because we're rubbish at ruling ourselves. We just look at the world. We're rubbish at ruling ourselves. But it's not just stupid. It's treasonous. It's personally insulting to the God who made us and who gave us everything we have. So just like those subjects at the end of last week's parable, what we deserve is to be executed. What we deserve is to face death. What we don't deserve is to be offered an open hand of peace by the God whom we've slapped in the face. What we don't deserve is for our king to walk into the city and face that death in our place. So back to our passage, is it any wonder these strangers are giving Jesus their donkey? Is it any wonder people are laying down their cloaks on the floor for Jesus to walk over because he's so great? Is it any wonder people are shouting the same message the angels were delivering at the time of his birth? Because this king has come to do what no other king can do, to bring peace between heaven and earth. I'm sure you've seen those images of London on VE Day, 1945. They're very famous images when, when peace was declared in the city. And, you know, British people, we're naturally quite reserved, aren't we? Especially the English, we're, we're extra reserved. But You'll see from those, those images, thousands of people gathered in Trafalgar Square and they're, they're splashing through the fountains. They were climbing lampposts. They were even doing the conga around Nelson's Column. In 1945, the conga existed back then. And even more, even more people gathered at Buckingham Palace to sing the national anthem before the king. And I'm sure the people who sung the loudest were the people who'd suffered the most. the people who have had their homes destroyed in the blitz, the people who are longing for their husbands and their brothers and their sons to come home from the front. War is over war is over and so for them praise is just the natural natural response it wasn't forced it wasn't engineered it was just dancing in the streets may i ask you what is your emotional response to what jesus has done because i guess if we suffered something of that war with god if um, if we've felt the self-destructive effect of our sin, if we've been convicted of that treasonous heart, then praise is the only natural response to this olive branch which has been handed to us, this offer of peace. What a great God we have. Praise him. It's like the disciples here. Of course, we're going to joyfully, not just lay down our cloaks, but lay down our lives before the king. We're going to instinctively shout of his greatness before our friends and before our families. We're going to desire to sing with gusto when we gather together, not just murmuring under our breath, but pounding it out because our God is great. But of course, not everyone is singing, are they? Look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will shout out. A bit like those um, art critics earlier on. It, it seems the disciples just don't see what the fuss is all about. While everyone else is shouting praise for their king, they, they're just addressing him as a mere teacher while everyone else is celebrating the peace between heaven and earth, they just see him as a threat to the peace that they have with the Romans. In a few days' time, they'll say, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus is a threat to the the status quo. And Jesus assesses them and he says, you guys are spiritually dead. Even creation, even the inanimate stones I'm walking on, even creation itself praises the Messiah, and you, Israel's leaders, you just don't see it, do you? He praises it's not the only measure, but it's a good barometer of spiritual life. If there's nothing in us which desires, desires to praise our King, do we really see who He is? Have really understood what he's done for us? Our King has come to bring us peace. Yes, he's given us a community yes he's given us his holy spirit and gifted us in so many different ways yes he's done marvelous things but he's he's won us peace praise god and we'll keep on praising him even though the world will try and shut us up praise god I kind of want to end here if i if i jesus i would have stopped there i want to end the sermon here i can't end the sermon here i'm afraid our, our passage kind of ends with a bit of a clang We expect the celebrations to continue into Jerusalem, don't we? We 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 expect the city to join with Jesus' disciples in in joyous praise of their king. We we expect Jesus to to get catch sight of the city and and glory in his arrival, but he weeps. This is our final point. The king weeps for war. Look at verse forty one. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You see, the tragedy is that whilst Jesus has come to bring us peace with God, Jerusalem just doesn't see it. They don't want him as king over them. And so by rejecting this free offer of peace, they continue on a road that leads to war. Jesus seems to say that his crucifixion is going to, if you like, flick a domino, which will have a domino rally effect, which will ultimately lead to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. It's ironic, isn't it? The Pharisees think that they can secure peace by rejecting Jesus as king. Jesus says it's the opposite. By rejecting me as king, war is coming. The Romans will come and crush the city And the Jewish historian, Josephus, he confirms everything Jesus says here. And Jesus' prediction is astonishingly accurate. The siege, the starvation, the women and children dying, the stones of the temple being ripped to the ground, all because they did not recognize their king when he came to offer them peace. This principle is true for us here today. We can, we can choose to reject Jesus' gift of peace. We can choose to continue to live our lives with Jesus' crown on our own heads. We can choose to build for ourselves our own little, little kingdoms, which we can try and make really quite secure and safe and peaceful. But friends, it will not last. If we insist on war, then God will treat us like adults. And all we've built for ourselves in this life will one day come crumbling to the dust and will burn. Friends, hell is real. Hell is real. On the 12th of December 1984, a very dense fog descended over the southern part of of, of England. And particularly over the M25 on on the southern boundary there. Various hazard warnings came up on, on, on the screens at the side of the road as they normally do. Warning uh, drivers, slow down, dense fog. But, you know, everyone ignores those, don't they? And I think it was about 6.15 in the morning when a lorry, which was carrying heavy rolls of, of paper, flipped over on the motorway and, and basically straddled the entire, the entire road. And within minutes, the freeway looked like a, like a massacre. With such low visibility, car after car, after car, just went slamming at high speed into this crumpled mass of burning wreckage. And by the time the police got there, ten people had already lost their lives. And two policemen, they quickly got out of their cars and they ran up the motorway to try and sort of hail down motorists, to try and get them to slow down. They were waving their arms, they were shouting loudly. If people drove past, most of the drivers, they just, just ignored the warning and just carried on headlong, into disaster in the end the policemen they were just so exasperated they began picking up traffic cones and throwing them at cars as they drove past pleading with them to stop but they ignored the warnings one policeman told of the tears which were streaming down his face as cars raced past and he could count the seconds between them going past him and then that sickening thud when he knew. They'll lose their lives. Jesus does not warn us about judgment with any sense of glee or enjoyment. Jesus isn't being vindictive here like, you know, those Westboro Baptist placard wavers. No, he's weeping. Tears are rolling down his face because he loves us because he sees a slow-motion car crash just ahead of where we might be. And to us today, Jesus says, verse 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you're here tonight, and you haven't yet made Jesus your king, if you haven't yet embraced that free offer of peace, you must do it. You must do it, and because disaster is just over, beyond, beyond this life. We might not see it now, but very soon will be a sickening thud, and then it will be too late. If that's you, you have been warned. You must turn to the King now. If if you feel, I don't know, I've got so many questions. You've got to come on this Christianity explored course. It's, Already about 10 people have signed up for it. You must come, ask your questions. Because if Jesus is the king, if he's the only one who can win you peace with God, the God with whom you've waged war, you've got to find out more. So if you're here tonight and you haven't made Jesus your king, do so soon. But if you have made Jesus your king, if you have accept and embraced that freedom, that, that peace, you have turned around well tonight i want it to be a night of joy because that disaster that hell has been taken for you at the cross and that is why jesus is walking into this city if you've understood that your heart will well up with joy and you'll praise your king because he loves you so much Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for these loving warnings. We thank you that Jesus warns us of the war which we foolishly wage against our God and sustainer, creator and savior lord forgive us thank you for jesus thank you for that peace which he freely offers to us thank you for his death on the cross thank you that he had his face set on jerusalem for our sake we pray lord tonight that we would turn to him as our peace as our rescue as our king send us out now lord to be vocal for that king to sing of his praises and of his wonder and of his forgiveness. And we ask that in his name. Amen.